This is uh, this is episode twelve, I guess it is, of Pals with Bill Watman. And today I have, I think, the most well-read person I know. You think that's true? I don't know everybody you know. Uh, I'm pretty well-read, but I know people who are who are ahead of me. Yeah, uh, we have the uh, up until recently the chief learning officer of ETS, uh, and uh, you know, one of my favorite people in the world, TJ Elliott here. Um, TJ married me and my wife. So so that was uh, pretty special. So you'll always be, you know, a, a top person in my, in my, in my life. That's fine. Nice you're, to hear. You're, you're, you're a very, we'll get into a lot of stuff, but you're a very family-orientated person. I am. I am. Uh, and, you know, I come from a big family. I was the fifth boy, and then a girl came along there. And there were other big families in that constellation, of which your, your wife is uh, on one of the branches of those trees. Right. Exactly. Um, can you tell me, cause you're all about learning education. Can you give me one thing you learned from your mother and your father each? Sure. Uh, from my father, uh, I, I would say there was a phrase that he actually whispered to Marjorie after our wedding. And he said, you know, Marjorie, the Elliott family motto is don't kid yourself. And so I think uh, I learned from my father uh, an approach of holding things away from yourself and not letting them hold you. And I I certainly have developed that further and in my own style there, but that uh, was important. And I, I, you know, it's hard to come up with just one thing there, but uh, the whole hard work thing, conscientiousness, that was very much my father. Um, my mother... Uh, I think, you know, I learned a great deal from my mother about faith and uh, about hope, uh, and those were really important things uh, to uh, to learn. She was somebody who never gave up on anything or on anyone, yeah. and uh, that that was very influential uh, to me. Of course, you know, as a kid, you're the the object of that faith and hope uh, there. So that uh, is not just learning, but uh, it's also inspiration. Yeah. Do you think your father's advice of don't kid yourself, is that more of a uh, don't get too big for your britches? Or or how do you think he meant it? No, I know very much how he meant it was that, um, and it's, you know, I think it's pertinent to a conversation like this, is that we all create stories about ourselves. Yeah. And, uh, in fact, that one of my favorite uh, quotes is from Rick Ross, who's a wonderful organization development uh, uh, writer. And I'm not going to get it exactly right, but you know, he he says something like, "We live in a world of self-generating beliefs, right? Myths. And, well, he says beliefs, you okay. know, uh, and and we do. We keep on generating these beliefs there, and at times they are patently out of out of touch with reality they're they're so out of touch with reality but we kid ourselves and and you know it's interesting my father said this to me going back as far as the 1950s and then you know decades later i come across the work of really great cognitive scientists like danny kahneman and and amos versky uh brendan nyan is somebody i read a lot now on cognitive biases there and basically my father was distilling this a whole field of cognitive behavioral economics, which was we kid ourselves all the time. Sure. Of course. Yeah. And do, you, do you, I mean, having read all that stuff and knowing that you, everyone always still has these sort of natural, as you say, biases towards all kinds of things. We exclude information that is useful. We give over importance to information that's not useful, yeah. you know, all, whatever yeah. our different things are in your own life. Do you find that you are good at trying to cut through that thicket of 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 what comes naturally and understand what's actually more accurate, you know, based upon. I think it's uh, it's a somewhat spotty record uh, because <laughs> there, you know, as Kahneman points out, there's system one and system two, and system one is a, a lot more powerful than system two. In fact, I was talking about this the other day and and showing people a graphic, and I could hear the gasps, the audible gasps, and I'm simply saying what Danny and Amos and others, you know, found to be true, which is that. 95% of what we're doing is system one, the, yeah. the whole idea of rationality and system two. So when you look at, at organizations or at individuals there, 
you, you know, the, the rational thing is, is taking a, a deep back seat to this for myself, you know, to your question of, you know, what, what is it, what is it like for me for cutting through it there? I think I, uh, am on the side of, uh, of Nisbet who, who has, you know, been in an interesting dialogue with Danny Kahneman. Nisbet believes we can train ourselves out of this. I think his work is at Michigan where he's actually trained undergraduates out of this by pointing out some simple things, some simple rules about how statistics really works, what probability really is there. Uh, So I think that uh, I I definitely have gotten better at that because of this knowledge. But Kahneman makes the point that, you know, he doesn't, he doesn't really think the knowledge makes a difference for him, for other people there that we're still going to make these mistakes. And when I think about, my relationship to food, sure, yeah, yeah, <laughs> or my relationship to driving too yeah. fast. Uh, I have to say, yeah, you're still you're still kidding yourself. Yeah, and and you could you or somebody who's looked into this stuff or well educated people know not that education necessarily a distinction in this case. Um, can do whatever you want, but so much of society is not going to live that's by that true. way. So at a certain point, it's just like, well, why bother? You know, like society is going to no, be pushing. I think, I, I think that's very very true that uh, you. You get into social situations also. Uh, you know, it, when I came to educational testing service, I was 50 years old. And so I already had been working in organizations doing the kind of work that I would do at ETS uh, for many years at that point. And I had had other careers before before that, but they all sort of came together in that point there. So now you're in this community. And I recognized early on that Telling people straight out, that's crazy, that's not supported by the evidence, was not going to be the, the best uh, approach to, right. to integrating, to, um, uh, to, to coming into uh, the community. What it, my old boss at the job I was before that used to have these phrases like gaining successful entry uh, to the community there. And so about two years later, someone said to me, you know, most people come into this community and they have such a hard time if they didn't sort of grow up here, you know. And so a lot of the people there were people who were there for 15, 20, 25, 30, 40 years there. How did you do it? And I said, I realized at ETS, they repel invaders, but they welcome pilgrims. <laughs> so I think a pilgrim goes into a situation like that going, okay, so this is their culture. This is the way they do things around here. And... uh you know, who am I to immediately say this isn't rational or this doesn't make sense here? Right. As the years went on, I think I got more comfortable challenging people for that. And and that didn't necessarily work all the time there. Right. But I, I think once you're in the community, then then it's easier to have those conversations. Was that the front-facing way that you thought about it as far as ingratiating yourself by by buying into the 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 systems that were already there? But inside, in your internal sort of uh, dialogue, were you still thinking, oh, well, that's kind of BS, or this is a good idea, or you know what I mean? That that you that you were that you were outwardly thinking differently than you were inwardly thinking? No, because if you do that, I believe that people will suss it out. I think people will figure that out. No, I really became a pilgrim. Uh, I I read everything I could. ETS, because it has this educational measurement library, uh, and I don't know exactly why they started this, but lovely thing they did was to start oral histories. Okay. So then someone uh, had a budget line that allowed you to transcribe them. So I went in and I read oral histories from the guy who founded uh, ETS uh, you know, from, from other, from the person who followed him at ETS and had a difficult time. And they even did some, um, uh, some things in terms of, uh, uh, oral histories of people who were in less exalted positions, but for some reason they felt that person really had something. They like were the, important, the, yeah. the first African-American woman, uh, uh, there. And, and, you know, it was, it was great because she was telling a story about, how she rode a motorcycle to work and how uh, they got angry at her uh, because uh, she uh, wanted to wear pants, you know, and so all of these things. So no, you have to approach it sincerely as a pilgrim, I think, or else first of, I think that creates too many kinds of, you know, addictions for you. Like, well, you're juggling this inner self with this outer self there, but also I think people pick up on it. Yeah. 
it's it's interesting. You're almost like learning the institution through osmosis by by following the history. You probably knew, you probably understood the culture of a place better than a lot of the people who were actually there because you saw it from the beginning by reading all of these histories and that. Not, but. I think that's true for some people, uh, definitely. And I think that gave me a lot of credibility. And I would advise that to anyone who's going into an organization that you know, understand what the history of this organization is, listen to people, talk to people uh, there. Uh, and the other thing I advise is understand that organizations are not rational places. Yeah. So, because if someone goes in and says, well, you know, I looked at the rule book and the policy and I've read the strategy documents there, I wouldn't say they're meaningless, but uh, the guy who was the CEO for most of the time that I was there, Kurt Landgraf, used to adopt this sort of Newark tough guy pose there. Uh, and uh, he would uh, cite some fictional friend, Rocky, you know, and he'd say, Rocky will say, don't watch what people say, watch what they do. And while that was a little bit hokey that he did that, there's a lot to be said for that. Sure. You know, yeah. that just look at the behaviors that people are following rather than uh, opening up uh, some sort of guidebook. Yeah. I, it- I think organizations, companies specifically, I don't necessarily agree with the Supreme Court that they are people, but they are certainly organisms, right? <laughs> you know, now, where, where'd you grow up? I uh, was born in the Bronx, but uh, spirited away. Famously uh, born in the Bronx. Famously born in the Bronx, uh, spirited away to uh, Northern Jersey. Uh, my parents, like a lot of people from that Irish neighborhood that was the South Bronx, St. Jerome's Parish, uh, they got out like, you know, some people went up to uh, Westchester and even beyond to Putnam. Some people went to Rockland, but a lot of people went across the bridge to Bergen County. Yeah. And so we were in Rutherford. And then in 1960, uh, we moved to Ridgefield Park, both in Bergen County. And I graduated from grammar school in Ridgefield Park. And then my father um, moved the, what was still in the house because my, my brother John and my brother Jimmy, my two oldest brothers, were already out of the house, uh, and so he moved the rest of us down to the Jersey Shore, to uh, Ocean Township. What was it like having a big family? I have I have just a sister, um, and my sister and I are very close most of the time. <laughs> uh, I, I know from my wife's family, and she's got, I guess, uh, you know, kind of three brothers and a sister. Um, actually, two sisters, I guess, if you look at it. And, you know, in that kind of thing, there's, there's, uh, uh alliances and, and, mm-hmm. and fights and battles. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a little bit like Europe, you know, uh, was it that way with, with you and your, yeah, I your mean, siblings? it certainly was tough, you know, it was five boys and my father let us go at it a bit. And there were some vicious, uh, fights and chases around the, the house. Physical uh, kind of stuff. Yeah. Oh yeah. And yeah. I, I, somebody once said, what did, you know, what did you learn growing up with, uh, four older brothers that I learned how to take a punch. Yeah. Uh, there, but my brother, John, uh, was really very, very, uh, kind. I didn't have that relationship with him at all. And he was the eldest and very significant. So I think the answer to your question is, I don't think anybody who grew up in a big family grew up in one family. Yeah. I, I think there's all of these different prisms that are there. So there's, when John is still in the house, there's that family and then John leaves for college and there's the a different change. family. Yeah. And then we're down the shore and there's a different family, yeah. uh, but they're there for you. And I, I was very close uh, to all of my brothers. Two of them unfortunately died in the last uh, five years, uh, Jim and Michael. They were number mm-hmm. two and number three in the, the sequence uh, there. Um, and they were all different. So I think that, that along with other experiences made me much less anxious about social situations of a certain kind. The interesting thing is the social situations that I most abhor are the small talk situations of, of a party uh, where, you know, you're meeting people and especially meeting strangers there. The situations that I most enjoy are the parties that I get to throw my, myself where my family members will be there and the extended family. I mean, we, we immediately, each one of us, added people to the family and, and you know it got to be a joke uh, uh, you know sunday some of michael's friends would show up they knew there was gonna be a big sunday dinner and right. they'd they'd show up and there'd be girlfriends there and all of all of that so it, it was it was very interesting and it was very intellectually provocative because of my parents uh who both had 
more than average amounts of education given where they came from and what the time was. My father was uh, a college graduate. My mother was the equivalent of, I guess, what would be sort of a junior college uh, graduate in in Ireland uh, there, which for a woman at that time in the 1930s was uh, significant. And so dinner table conversations were not about pop culture. Yeah, Dinner table conversations were about politics and theology and literature. Yeah. Uh, As our days on the beach down here with you now. Yes, yes. Right. So, I mean, you say that, you know, small talk situations, but I don't imagine you keeping small talk, small talk for very long. Hi, nice to meet you. You know, oh, you know, find out what you do. Oh, and then dive into some sort of common knowledge. You guys That's the have. best alternative. <laughs> yeah, sure. Yeah. Some people want to keep small talk, small talk. And, yeah. You know, so I never found the point of that. Uh, nor did I, but you know, I, I, I think there's uh, all, all sorts of different personalities. And so for some people that's really comfortable uh, for them to do. What, what did you imagine you'd do when you grew up, when you were younger? Well, the, you know, the joke about me was that uh, I was the one going around saying that I was going to be the first Pope president. Uh, and I really was, I was, I, free, I had a, a vivid imagination, uh, an early Which age. Which one were there. you going to get first? Were you going to become president and then? No, I figured you'd be Pope. Oh, okay. and then, yeah. then you'd be Come president. back to America and win the yeah, election. Come back yeah. to America and win the yeah. election and stuff there. And it was interesting because I was in the fourth grade when John F. Kennedy was elected. Right. Uh, and, uh, I remember, uh, my grandfather, Jack Elliott, uh, talking about the election and being angry that Kennedy had issued a statement to, I think it was the the leaders of the Southern Baptists, um, in which he said, I just want you to know if I'm elected, my allegiance to my country, and you yeah. know, the Pope isn't going to tell me Don't what worry, to I'm do. Don't worry, I'm not going to listen to the Pope, yeah. And of course, that was true. That wasn't what my, my grandfather uh, had a problem with there. His problem was who are they? You know, why, yeah. why should you, you know, why should you write a letter to, to, to them? You right. know, yeah. and why should you explain yourself in, in any way? And I, I've, I've always marveled at this mythology that grew up afterwards that all Irish Catholics were uh, enamored of the, of the, of the Kennedys. The Kennedys were lace by the time we knew them were lace curtain uh, uh, Irish Catholics. And while there was a, a certain, admiration for them there i had plenty of relatives and knew plenty of relatives of relatives there who uh resented them re- resented joe kennedy and they also unlike today people were more familiar so you had people who knew that joe kennedy had advocated isolationism sure. in world war ii as the ambassador to the, to the court of saint james mm-hmm. uh in fact for a lot of irish people the very fact that a Kennedy would want to be ambassador to the court of St. James at that, at that time was uh, distasteful. Right. So, so it was, it was very, very interesting uh, how that, how that all sort of developed, but that was a big thing in our family was, was the whole political uh, issue there. So the joke was, you know, I'm going around saying I want to be Pope, Pope president there. Oh, just about the same time that a Catholic is finally getting be president. Yeah, I was going to say, if it w- was it Kennedy that set you off? And no, you're saying that no, that, that no, just no, was happenstance. No, that, no that I was, uh, you know, my mother was Irish Catholic and we were uh, a, a devoutly religious family uh, at that time. And uh, so I think that was more. And then the other thing, I was really interested in history. So I, I, I read all of these, there used to be these books, you know, there used to be, I think there still are children's libraries there. And so there was this one shelf in the Ridgefield park library i recall i think it was um that had all of the presidents in this highly fictionalized account i think or 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 distorted account what they were like as children god okay so you could go through not all of them obviously there wasn't a millard fillmore or james chester arthur yeah but there was you know teddy roosevelt as a child and george washington as a child jefferson and lincoln as a child there and so you get excited about that like that's that would be great. That would be great to have that life and then be be president. Yeah. I would be the least likely person to be president there because once I discovered that you actually had to get people to vote for you, 
I have no interest in ever asking anybody to vote for me in any yeah. way. But, but police, uh, it's it's presidents and policemen. It's like, if you want to be either one of them, you're probably not the right person to be that, right? <laughs> it's, That's a very good point. <laughs> very good point. Although, you know, I come from a real cop family, as I think you, you well, may know. Well, I'd imagine you would be. Good yeah. Irish New York family. You got to have cops well, and firemen. Well, I mean, my, I, uh, my uncle Tom and my uncle Eddie, who were my uh, father's two younger brothers, and or two of his younger brothers. He had another one, uh, my uncle Jim, who was a Christian brother. And then my aunt Bess, who's still alive and will celebrate her 90th birthday this year. She not only worked for the New York PD, then she worked for the, uh, FBI, right? the FBI. And my grandmother had this house in Throg's Neck. And on Sundays, there was to be these fabulous gatherings where we'd be there. There'd be all of these kids there. There'd be a contingent of Christian brothers from Manhattan College there and a contingent of cops, some of whom apparently we're on patrol because they were in uniform and it was a cop car that pulled up and my grandmother would go out with a plate or a sandwich or something for these guys there. Right. Uh, I don't know how they managed to justify being in Throg's Neck where there were so many cops, only an idiot would have ever dared to commit a crime. Right, right. Man, Bess would be a good person for me to interview. Somebody. Oh my gosh, yes. That would, that would be incredible. Oh boy, she's got a lot. Uh, so, so you were going to be Pope President, and then you <laughs> let go of that at a certain point. I'm assuming I did. Uh, I, uh, I, you know, when I when you're, I was you're in splitting high school, your allegiances a little bit there between the church and politics. I think like every kid, I, I heard Spike Lee interviewed the other day, and he said, you know, he was he was wanted to be a second baseman for the Mets, but his uh, his genes didn't cooperate. Right uh, there, you know, you have ideas that you're going to do something athletically there. Uh, but I thought that I might um, be a teacher. Uh, I went to uh, college with the idea of being a psychologist, and then I switched over to be an English major. And when I came out, I thought that I would work in publishing and I would be a writer. Um, and I didn't get a job in publishing, and I did get a job as a teacher. Because you got disillusioned, uh, sorry, just one thing you said, is, uh, psychology to English. Because you became disillusioned with psychology or because you became no. interested in English? No. And this is a nice irony, I think, given that I've spent 17 years with Educational Testing Service, the the world's greatest educational measurement organization, I completely pooched Statistics 101, which oh. you have to take there <laughs> as a freshman. And I had to do all these advanced placement credits, so I was taking as a freshman there. I was a terrible student. I went to college when I was 17. The, you know, my father was so strict. It was such a uh, disciplined house. that, And, you know, there were certainly outlaw moments that we had, but they were the exception. He was the rule. And then you go to college. It's the summer of uh, 1969 or, uh, yeah, when I arrived there. And, uh, you know, it was like shaking up a soda can, uh, a soda bottle, and then taking the cap off. You yeah, know, yeah. I, I was all over the place. So once that happened, I was like, oh, do I want to go back and take statistics again? And I had and still have a good friend. In fact, his birthday is today, Steve Gary. Um, he was an English major. And I had another guy who I was about to become a roommate with, who's still a dear friend, uh, Michael McKeever, he was an English major. And another friend who was going to be a roommate was an English major. So I'm going to be an English major. Oh, okay. You just kind of uh, fell in and, and so, and then when it got to be senior year, I'm thinking, well, publishing job. And I had been, you know, editing yearbooks and newspapers and things like that during that, that time and doing writing there. But um, I ended up getting a teaching job instead. And your parents were all right with you switching to an English major from a psychology major? I, I think by the time the fifth kid comes along, you know, if, yeah. you, if you stay alive, yeah. that's really it. And, you know, don't get your name in the paper. You know, you talk about your father in a very, like, he's a very strong-willed guy. Did, did, you, did you accept or resent that sort of power? You see what I'm saying? I think that uh, it may, at least it my, might be different now than then. You know what I mean? You're, no, you're, no, no, no. Yeah. I, I, I get your question there <clears throat> okay. about then. Um my experience of it was bilateral. Uh, there were times when I was so grateful to be associated with this force, with this, uh, he was an intellectual force and he was a physical force. But there were certainly times I was really resentful. My father had rules like, I don't want you guys to date in high school. Why not? Uh, Take you away from your studies. I think he I think he was overwhelmed to a certain extent by having five boys. I think also probably he knew a little bit more about the world than we than we did certainly there. Um 
in the long run, I don't think it was a good move because I think that simply made it more enticing rebel, for sure. some of them yeah. to to date. And I know I, you know, I snuck out and had uh, given my looks at the time um, more dates than probably I even deserved. But uh, <laughs> I, uh, you know, so so there was there was some resentment of the, of that. But I wrote a book um, about a trip to Ireland with three of my brothers uh, called Chasing the Dead uh, about this sort of genealogical pursuit. And in there, I had a chapter about my father. And my brother John uh, wrote me a note and said, it's a good book. I, I really enjoy it. However, I have to talk to you about something. I thought, oh, what does he want to talk to me about? I right. mean, there. And he wanted to tell me that he had a completely different relationship with my father. And he, he really felt that that was important to tell me, that he had this really different relationship with, with uh, my father. And, and that... I guess I knew that a little bit, but then talking to him, I realized, well, each one of the six kids right. had a different Well, it's the prism that you talked about earlier, yeah. right? You know, yeah. I, I, my father died 12 years ago. My sister and I have very, even though we had many of the same experiences, we have very different views of my father and the things that we weight him on, you know, in, yeah. in a similar way. Yeah. Um, so, okay. So you're, you, you finish school, you start teaching. Yeah. Where were you teaching? You were teaching like school, school, college school. What were you teaching? Well, it's interesting because I was looking for teaching jobs and I knew, you know, I'm getting out of college. I was paying my own way through college. Um, Where'd you I go had, to school? I, I went to Manhattan College in the Bronx. Right. And so I had a uh, a scholarship uh, there, which is was in part due to my, uh, my uncle Jim, who was a Christian brother who taught electrical engineering there for decades. Is that a Jesuit uh, school? No, no, that's a Christian no. brother school. Oh, okay. Yeah. Sorry. Fordham yeah. was our rival. They oh, of course. Yeah, are yeah, yeah, and yeah. were a Jesuit school. And I managed to get an interview at Cabrini, which was this uh, girls' school on uh, the way up on the Upper West Side of Washington Heights uh, in Manhattan. And then I got another interview at Lincoln Hall, which was a reform school. Um, and the woman that I was uh, living with at the time uh, – took one look at the length of the skirts at Cabrini and decided, you know, <laughs> you're going I, to the reform I'm school, going to reform school <laughs> which I think was a really lucky thing for me. I mean, I I've had abundant luck in, in my life. And that was one thing. Cause I think if I'd gone to Cabrini, I, I, I just don't think it would have been as, as stimulating. And some of my best friends, uh, two of my, my very dearest friends are guys that I met. We were teachers at Lincoln hall and, Link, it was it was a time of change, you know, went there in 1973 and things were going on in New York City. So the reform school had been a much milder kind of place, you know, more dead end kids, you sure. know, uh, uh, sort of sort of thing there where they haven't really done anything wrong. There was something in New York State, I don't even know if it still exists, it was called a PINS petition where someone could file a petition for a minor that they were a person in need of supervision, hence the PINS. Got there. it. So – when I got there in 73, there were still about, I would say, 60, 70% of the kids were PINs petitions. And the other 40% were kids who had actually committed some crime and had been sent there. So the 70% were kids whose parents were sort of on the outs who yeah, weren't getting yeah, what they needed yeah. from home. Yeah. By the time I left, I think PINs petitions were down to like 5%. And I was only oh, there really? for three years. Oh, so it really just fell off a cliff at that and, point. And, you know, gangs and and drugs uh, played an enormous uh, role in that. So it was a it was a, a tough place. It must have been pessimistic to, to, to sort of fight against the tide there, no? I think you're so focused on the day-to-day. -day. Yeah, I, that's a really good point that you make there. I think some some of the teachers became more pessimistic. I think I managed to focus on the day-to-day. -day. I, I didn't even look enough ahead. Somebody once said to me, one of the other teachers who was a very good teacher, BJ Stringer, said, well, what about your lesson plans? I said, I don't do lesson plans. I have plans. no lesson plans. What are you no, talking about? I'm not, I have ideas about English <laughs> that, you know, that I got you know, years ago. And um, so I try to enact those. Uh, and you know, of course, you got help. You had textbooks and guides and things like that. But the most successful time I had there happened after a disastrous first year i mean i was constantly being tested by the kids they were quite willing to get physical with you and really daring you and wanting you to get physical with yeah. with them taunting you yeah i mean because the first, if, because if you did they could go to administration against you or just as like a oh, no. power no, just, just a power thing. thing pure pure alpha males yeah. stuff uh the first day i taught 
I uh, had my tie on and my jacket and I had all these uh, uh, little notebooks there and I had sharpened all of these pencils and I handed out all the sharpened pencils. And a guy I'll never forget, um, his name was Angel Villa. How's that for typecasting? Uh, He's in the back of the room and he said, teach. What would you do if all of us, and there are about 13 kids in the class, took these sharpened pencils and charged the room right now? I mean, this is like I'm a minute into my teaching career. I I had taught during college in Catholic grammar schools in the Bronx. So I I had taught before. There's no relationship whatsoever to teaching at St. Anthony's on Richardson Avenue. This could have been a 90% hypothetical, but there's a chance that these kids go a little nuts. And then in certain classes that year, you know, some kids would get up and you you have to put them down. So I was toward the end of that first year and a guy, wonderful, wonderful guy, was a Vietnam vet, Bob Powers. There was a cottage system there. And so kids were residents of a particular cottage and he was the head of the Briar Cottage. And he said, I think you should come work for me this summer. Yeah. He said, you got a summer job? I said, no. And, and you know, every teacher tried to have a summer job, had to have a summer job. You, you, you couldn't uh, live without having something going on during the summer. And so I did. And Bob taught me an awful lot about hand, how to handle situations just by watching Bob handle situations. And I, I won't deny it. It was physical. There, there, in that school, there was something of a prison guard aspect to the role that you were playing there. Sure. You couldn't pretend that you were just a teacher or just a counselor there. But if there was going to be any progress whatsoever, that had to be minimized. So Bob figured out how to establish relationships with, with the kids in a particular way. You could not become the friend of the kids. And that, I think, was... Uh, an obstacle as much as you that over. seems like a strategy that might work yeah in the end it just backfires yeah it backfires. or work with a minority of the kids and the other kids would take advantage no of it, it wouldn't work with anybody in the end because even if you be, did become true friends with one kid then the other kids would all take advantage of that yeah that's true and they pick on that kid yeah so so i was there for three years and then uh that same girl who who get woman who didn't want me to teach uh at the school with all of the uh, beautiful 16 and 17 year old new york girls uh she was from saratoga springs and uh we had gotten together so i knew saratoga springs quite a bit we had married and uh i wanted to live in saratoga springs i just thought it would be the greatest thing to live in saratoga springs and her, her mother was in favor of that as well so her mother started sending me uh, notices for civil service jobs and one came up to be the Saratoga County alcoholism counselor. And the rules of civil service are that if you finish in the top three on the exam, they have to interview you. They were the rules at that time in 1976. So I went to the Kings, up. Kingsbridge uh, public library in the Bronx um, and took out their only three books on alcoholism and read them and sat in November, it was actually 75 uh, for the test. And then months later, I got it. I mean, like, it must have been, that was November. I don't think I was told till April, oh, you're in the top three, we have to interview. And I went up this interview, all of 24 years old. Did some of the people there have counseling degrees and education? Oh, yeah. And, and yeah. Experience some in some this of them were psychologists. Yeah. 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 Sure. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and I had no graduate degree whatsoever. I hadn't gone back to graduate school at that point. Uh, and when we went into the interview, there were two people, Bob Greenbaum, who was the psychologist, the number two person for the whole Saratoga County mental health system, and Tom Davis, who was on their advisory board, who was the chaplain at Skidmore. And uh, they said, well, why should we hire you? And I said, to tell you the truth, I do not know as much about alcoholism probably as the other people you're going to interview here. But I am a substance that you can mold in the way that you need to have me be and i can be your agent for doing this i'm a blank slate upon which you can write and they cracked up and they hired me (laughs) and so i at the age of 24 in in uh, right around this time in 1976 i'm taking the train up there and we're going to move up to saratoga and that was a tremendous experience because i was in with a bunch of other professionals who did want to be there and there were brilliant people there claire stafford who is now dead one of the leading lights of the gestalt movement 
in this country. She's the chief counselor on the mental health unit. Yeah. You know, Greenbaum, Sam Mastriani was the head of the whole thing. Just, I mean, it was such an education. And the other part of it was I started counseling uh, people and my boss, uh, Betsy Davis, was the uh, a codependent, the wife of a recovering alcoholic. Uh, and Carolyn Field got hired without having to do the civil service thing. And she uh, was someone who knew the system very well. So I learned a great deal about it, a great deal about myself. Two years later, the marriage is broken up and I'm being offered a job in Albany by the state. And I bless his memory to this day. Sam Mastriani comes up to me at a, at a retreat of all the county mental health people and says, I hear you're about to take a job in Albany working for the state. And I said, well, yeah, they've offered me a job. It's good money and stuff. He said, I just think that's a terrible idea for you. I, I, I think you are not the person who should ever work for state government there. I said, I have a job for you if you want. I said, the, the, the county drug agency has been placed on probation. Okay. <laughs> the guy, the people, uh, the, run, <laughs> the people running it have been, have done such a terrible job that, uh, we're, we're, we're close to being shut down and we won't get any more state funding. If we don't get state funding, then we, you know, the County isn't we're going cooked, to yeah. make it up there. He said, so this is a no lose situation for you. So if you go in there and you turn it around, it'll be great. If you don't turn it around, the state will still, it was already you. sinking anyway. Yeah. So I went in and, uh, I was there for two years and obviously we turned, turned it around and it's still going to this, to this, to this day there. And it, that was, management i hadn't really um you know other than uh telling a couple of guys on a painting crew what to do in summers there i hadn't really managed before and you're managing a budget you're managing different things there so that was a great learning experience even even in the story so far you've talked about a number of unsolicited opportunities that have yeah. come along yeah <clears throat> a lot of people discount them or 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 don't bring them up in their own story because they think oh you know i i made this for myself and yeah. so often it is <laughs> Somebody who comes along and says, hey, you seem like a smart kid. Follow me for a little bit. Or, you know, here, here, here's, here's a hand. I, I, see, I see you need a hand up. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. hold on and I'll pull no. you up. Um, do you try to do that to other people? Absolutely. Absolutely. In fact, I'm very proud of a record that I have at ETS is that uh, I have never turned down a request from someone to come and talk to me about their, their, their career. And my, my former assistant, who now lives in North Carolina, we're still in touch, Cheryl Aaron, she used to say, your schedule's crazy. You can't do this. Stop yeah. doing this here. And I'd say, you know, it's it's flexible. Uh, it's expandable. We'll we'll make it work here. If I have to stay another hour or come in an hour earlier there. And I, it's been a, a, a really wonderful experience because you're absolutely right, Bill. That's what happened to me. I am that lucky kid who people came to again and again. However... You have to be prepared. When to take advantage of the opportunity. You, yeah. When someone comes to sure. you, you have to work really hard to understand the situation and you have to work really hard to apply yourself to the most important tasks within yeah. the situation. And you have to be brave enough to say yes. I think there's a lot of people or, who are foolish enough. foolish enough to say yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But there, there's a certain level of, oh, I'm kind of stepping into the abyss here. This is not something that I would ever normally do. The and funny thing about that for me is that, and my my wife Marjorie, we've been married since 1983. We've been together since 79. She says this bit about all the time. She's like, you'll get offered these jobs. You'll say, this job is going to be great. And you'll go into the job and then you'll come home a week later and go, I'm not sure I can do this job. This yeah. job is so intense. And then I will... Uh, go into overdrive uh, to, you know, to make sure that it's going to be successful. You know, you asked at the beginning, you know, what do you get from your parents there? Uh, they were determined to be successful at whatever they undertook. Yeah. And I, I don't know that I was cognizant of that at the time, but I think that's something that you absorb. Yeah. I think that feeling of, of t taking on maybe biting off a little more than you can chew and feeling underwater for a bit is also something that, there's a lot of things in school that they don't teach you no. in life. No. And I think one of them is, yeah, a new job is going to make you feel like you're underwater for right. a little while, no right. matter how prepared right. you are, just because it's a completely new situation. You're not up to speed and et cetera, et cetera. That's okay. Yeah. You know, not knowing the answer yet is okay. Cause everyone didn't know the answer at yeah. some point. And then they yeah. found out the answer They figured it out, you know? So, so you're, you're doing the counseling, you're running this, this mm -hmm. new organization. Is that how you ended up at the airline? 
No. Uh, I mean, I guess in a roundabout way, the fact that I had that as a background, uh, I'm unattached in 1978. And Tom Davis, that guy who uh, interviewed me for the job, has been a mentor uh, my entire life. And at that time, he says, didn't you used to do some acting? You should, uh, you, you should, you know, Skidmore is still not quite a co-ed school. There are males here, but there are definitely not enough males. My friend Alan Brody really needs actors for his productions. Go audition. So I auditioned and I got one of the leads in The Devil's Disciple and in 78. So that's 40 years ago that that happened. And uh, I decided, well, I, you know, can I go back into theater? Can I do some things in theater there? So after doing some regional stuff up there, I said, I'm going to New York City. I want to go to New York City. And I went to New York City. I studied with Terry Schreiber. But I quickly realized that I was going to need, you know, a straight job. So for a while, I was the family counselor at St. Vincent's, which no longer exists in Greenwich Village, which was, again, a great experience, like being on an all-star team uh, in the field of uh, uh, of addictions. And then I said, no, I can't have like a day job. And eventually I ended up with a night job as the night supervisor of counseling at a place called Gracie Square Psychiatric on 76th Street. And from that, now Marjorie and I are getting further along here and I'm realizing, you know, we're getting married and I'm still the night supervisor and I'm writing during the day and I've got, you know, review sketches uh, that show up and readings of my plays, but I'm not making any money from it. Right. And we want to have kids. So I get offered a job by another mentor, Monica Wright, who ran the program at Gracie Square called Breakthrough and a legend in recovery community in, yeah. in New York, in New York state. And, Late and 70s, even around the early country. 80s. That was the, the, the first heroin wave as it were, yeah, right? Yeah. And she's, you know, she had been out at South Oaks and Amityville and then had started this own program here. I mean, she was internationally known there and she was always sort of trying to get me to work full time. She said, why don't you come here and you know, like be the educational director for us there. So that's how I ended up at American airlines because I came up with the idea that we would go into any corporation that wanted, any work organization that desired training of supervisors on how to deal with performance problems that might be due to personal problems. And of those personal problems might be addiction, might be something else. Do you think that today the the jobs you had earlier in your career – that anyone would with somebody would hire somebody without a specific degree in that area the oh, way no. that they yeah it, no that feels like a complete you're, you're telling these stories i'm like you have a degree in english what the hell are they yeah, hiring you no, for these things absolutely for? well i was at, at that point you had experience I, doing it but I, again my my luck with tests or skill with tests whatever you want to call it there i had passed the first new york state credentialed alcoholism counselor exam so i'm a credentialed alcoholism counselor and there weren't a lot of those so that that helped a great deal. Credentials matter a great deal, but you're uh, correct in saying that today, James Fallows wrote a great piece about this some years ago, the credentialing of America. Today, we keep on lifting these things. In fact, I would tease- You, you need a master's degree to get the first job in the- in the, right. in the, in the Well, I mean, I, I would tease the people at ETS when I was, you know, when I get to ETS and I get a number of portfolios and one of them is, is you know, HR, talent management. And of course, that involves recruiting- and so we'd be recruiting for jobs in assessment development. And uh, they'd say, well, I want this, them to have you know, this degree and this specialization, this experience. And I would say, I've looked at your, your personnel folder. You have none you of these things. You didn't have any of those. Well, they, yeah. they, some of them got their hand, but you didn't have any of those things when you started. And, and it's certainly they no would guarantee say, well, of success. You know, it's different. So, I mean, we keep on upping these things here. Yep. There's a lot of good economic literature on this, on this signaling aspect here. Uh, of people being overprepared, overeducated for it there. And then we find out that the skills that really matter are not necessarily conveyed by those educational yeah, opportunities. Yeah, yeah. Or or that's 30% of what makes success in yeah. any particular industry. Yeah. More people skills are yeah. just as important and whatnot. You know, I mean, to things. to your point, uh Susie Wallace is at American Airlines and she's running these employee assistance programs for the employees who have problems and, and American had just started the the program and she says, Oh my God, I saw you do this thing. I want you to do it for me. So I'm getting up at like four o'clock in the morning, going out and training supervisors at LaGuardia, at JFK. I'm, I'm you know, being flown down to, to other uh, stations on the East coast. 
And then Susie does the math and realizes since she had started at American as a flight attendant that she could return to her flight attendant job. She has to do it before one year has elapsed. So she's on a sort of a leave and she could fly three days a week and make more money than she was making at a job that was a 24 seven job yeah, being a senior mama as they're called in the industry. Yeah. So, and, and American at that time was just opening its routes to Europe. So Susie's like, I'm flying to Munich, you know? And, yeah, yeah, and, yeah, yeah. and so she said, I think you should take this job. And she shipped off the videotape to the guys in Dallas and they said, this is great. So, I mean, this is interesting, right? How often does someone hiring in a job like that actually get to see a videotape of you doing I, mean, I think that happens in computers where, where, you know, you can go look and see this guy either or gal either writes good code or they write terrible code yeah. there. But in other jobs, we don't get to see that. Yeah. 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 I, one of my earlier episodes, I had a software engineer on and talking about, you know, the famous Google interviews where yeah. they sit you down and, you know, stick a problem in front of you yeah. and your brain yeah. teasers, you know, yeah. uh, it was fascinating thing. Um, so at, at the airline, I mean, for obviously airlines have been around for 60 years before you yeah, started there. Yeah. Was, was this the beginning of them understanding that, that, that pilots and all these people in the industry had problems that were going on? Like, was it, was it, did they, did they yeah. understand that for years or was that like a realization or something that finally. No, no, they them? didn't understand it for years. In fact, uh, they would, uh, the pilots themselves, you know, were in a difficult position because if it was discovered, then you're going to lose your, your license. You're gonna, Right. You know, lose your car drinking or whatever. Uh, else yeah. It was. And, and so you had people who would hide it and then you'd get these circumstances that were really scary. Uh, one of the pilots that I worked with lovely man, uh, when he finally told me his story he said, yeah, you know, I was, I, I was in line to take off and I blacked out, oh. you know, but there's a co-pilot, but still, still he was the lead pilot. Yeah, but who knows if the co-pilot yeah. was sauce too, you know, that's, that's so, the problem. Yeah. So, uh, the FAA had instituted a program which was extremely rigorous, and I assume it still is there, where if someone uh, documented their participation in rehabilitation and they were being followed by uh, the rep at the company, and that was my job for the East Coast there, I worked in the employee relations department, which also you know had all of the union negotiations there, sure. which made yeah. it interesting – then eventually, and they they had to be examined by uh, an FAA doctor. They come back, and they had to have regular uh, uh, random testing. And this is before the testing was you know a- anywhere prevalent there. So the airlines were recognizing that, but they were also recognizing it built with mechanics and with flight attendants, sure. and you know, you know uh, it was a tremendous thing to all of a sudden have it be available to to these other folks. However, the other thing that was happening at the airlines at that time was the effects of deregulation that had come under President Carter okay. were starting to be felt. And so the competition became much more serious. I mean, when I was in the airlines, there were airlines like Ozark and TWA and Eastern. Ah, you know, Eastern they, Airlines. They don't exist them. anymore. Yeah, sure. Yeah. You know? yeah. But did, did the airlines see it as a – employee health issue or as a loss of productivity issue or a combination of all of this combination. Uh, and also, uh, they wanted to manage healthcare costs. And so, uh, someone is, you know, constantly going into a hospital to be treated for something other than the problem that they actually have. Sure. Uh, and because of the unions, the airlines had a, had a fairly rich, uh, benefit, uh, program, uh, when it came to health, healthcare yeah. there, so that was part of what we were trying to do was to manage those behavioral health costs better. And you had kids at the time by then? Uh, Claire was born two days after I got the American Airlines job. She was okay. born on August 4th. I got the American Airlines job on, on August 2nd. So in the early days of her life, I'm flying all over the place. Yeah. And it was it was a uh, 60% travel job. You would go. I would go out to LaGuardia. And I would get on a plane to go up and see my people in Boston, to go see my people in D.C., and in the early days, even go out to the Caribbean and to Florida. Then American got so much bigger, we split into two regions, and another guy, Howard Dreyer, came in and took care of that. We had open Nashville and open Charlotte and things like that. Did you see it? I mean, you're running around, flying all over the country for your work, working, I'm sure, crazy hours. Yeah. Um, Did you see that as a – you have the family at home. Did you see that as, I've got to put in my due – 
my dues. I'm uh, paying my dues. I'm, I'm a younger guy who's trying to make my career. Or did you see it as, no, this is just what it is. I'm just going to be away from my family and, and working like crazy all the time. I think it was the former that I felt I had to put in my dues, but you know, it's a difficult balance uh, for a, a lot of people. Marjorie had her own photography business, but you know, it, again, this is a throwback to things that people may not even think of now that most photography is digital. There's this thing called there. film. <laughs> Jesus, well, you do, but but you know, you've got a, a an infant, and uh, you've got these chemicals around that are yeah, sure. dangerous. So that put a crimp in the photography uh, business, and so I'm trying to figure out how to establish a a life for us that is going to allow us to do the things we want to do for the kids, and you know, then we had a second kid and a third kid there. So uh, it was always a negotiation uh, between what do you need to do to get ahead in this job, given the qualifications I have. Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Between the airline and ETS, you worked at a number of consulting companies. Is that correct? Well, yeah, I, I, I came out of uh, American Airlines cause I got recruited. Um, I knew uh, Pam Cavanaugh who had been my opposite number at TWA and she left TWA to go work for a, a little consulting firm uh, called Price Waterhouse Cooper. <laughs> no, no. Well, Paul Sherman Associates and Paul had worked for ITT and he had all of these contacts. So he was able to walk in and get business places, but he didn't have the capacity to deal with it. So he had just gotten the Lipton contract. Oh, okay. T. Uh, T. Okay. And at the time, you know, Lipton had just been uh, acquired by Unilever. Uh, and I'll never forget, I went to the interview and I was careful after, you know, the lunch in this fancy, uh, place in, uh, Englewood Cliffs, New Jersey, they offer us tea. And I'm like, yes, I'll have, you know, they bring out the fancy Lipton teas there. And the guy who interviewed me said, oh, I'll have a scotch. <laughs> <laughs> You're trying to impress him. By yeah. Your, yeah. I was like, like, you know, I'm a company, I want is this damn tea that I have company to man here. But, uh, so I did similar work for Lipton setting up these programs, doing managerial training dealing with the situation that came up. And then we got the FAA and we got Toys R Us. And I, I started to get All right, much man. more familiar with how to go into an organization and talk to them about what was the problem that they were feeling and then craft some sort of solution for them right. there. And so that then meant that I continued the consulting career at, at two other firms, roughly doing the same thing, but constantly branching out into more organization development, more HR. Did you, did you, did you like working at a consultancy going into places as an independent person or working at a company and being internal more? I preferred being internal. More politics internal? There are more politics internal, but but the problem is you don't even know where the politics are when you're a consultant. You know, you yeah. you can get blindsided. And the other thing is if your contact ends up leaving, like there was one firm where I'd done a lot of work over the years and my my contact left that firm and they called me and I was like, Oh, they're going to call me in for my next assignment. They called me in to tell me basically you'll never work here again. Cause yeah. we yeah. Jan you know, left. You're yeah, over. Yeah. You're that's done. it. You're over. And, and that would be the issue there with that. And then you're like constant again, back to my small talk thing. You're constantly meeting a whole new crew of people. You got to start and, from scratch and you start from scratch with these relationships. And until you get to the meat of the issue there, which you can't just jump into there, you've got to sort of build these relationships and that was onerous. Yeah. Took too long. Yeah. It was uh, uh, psychologically <laughs> exhausting for you. Yes, it was. <laughs> good, good pick. The, um, the, uh, can you tell me, because the stuff you did at ETS and these other places, employment stuff, people trying to find, I guess my, my question is vocational testing, Myers-Briggs and all these kinds of things about trying to figure out what it is that matches correctly with yeah. the way your brain works. You, you, do you believe in these kinds of tests? Do you think they're useful? I think that the, the utility of, of uh, workforce testing falls into two categories. One is that uh, there are workforce tests that people use because they are the start of a conversation uh, about uh, things. So they're not high stakes. They're not determining whether somebody's going to be hired or not there. And I, I would put Myers-Briggs in that category. Uh, the validity and reliability of Myers-Briggs, uh, in my view, uh, is is not very high. Limited, and and, yeah. and by, by validity, I mean, does it 
allow you to make the claim you want to make. And by reliability, if you gave the test to somebody six months later, would you get the same uh, uh, claim uh, right. or assessment there? Right. And so, you know, and it's famously people will say, oh, I was an ENTJ this morning and I'm an INTJ this afternoon. How can that be? And Myers-Briggs has its own explanation of it. And, you know, God bless them. Uh, the, you know, they're doing whatever they're, they're doing there. Um, but the second category is that there are workforce assessments that can help both the employee and the employer to understand what, what needs to be learned next. What, what, you know, how could this person develop there? And I think those assessments, um, and there aren't a whole lot of them there, are, are much better. And we're still learning a great deal about that. So I was never a huge fan of using the assessments myself. There were a few that I think were were good. I'd rather use them once somebody was hired to figure out how they can develop. Yeah, yeah. Did can you? <laughs> this, this is a tough one. You ready for the tough sure. question? Explain to me what a chief learning officer does, buzzword free. So you want the people in an organization to connect to the knowledge they need to do their jobs. Okay. And some of that will happen naturally. I mean, that's why firms exist. Like, yeah. you know, five guys get together in a garage and the reason they, that one guy chose the other four guys, is because, well, you know about programming and you know about marketing and, yep. and you know about content. So, you know, and, and you know about money. So we're going to do this here. So they do that on their own. But as an organization gets larger, and and you as the environment changes, how do you make sure that people can connect to the knowledge they need to do their jobs? In some cases, that's having the knowledge sitting there, whether it's in a repository or understanding how you can locate expertise yeah. in an individual's yeah. head. Yeah, yeah. Make, making connections between people. Yeah. Yeah. And there's also, of course, continuing education and all those traditional well, but, things. But see, that's the, but that's the other part there is, is that, you know, you want someone to be able to interpret the world in the most practical manner. That's what work organizations tend not to be very abstract. And I think it's probably a good thing. They want, they want to create value and you create value by uh, having customers who say, I'd like to buy that, right. whatever it is. And so you've got all of these elements that go into creating that value. That's the chief learning officer is connecting those employees, to the people and knowledge they need to do their jobs. In some cases, that connection has to be learning. The knowledge doesn't even exist yet. In some yeah. cases, you're getting people together to have them make sense of the situation and then come up with an action plan and and then figure out like, well, how will we reflect on this so that we can learn from it and do it better the next yeah. time? And so much of that seems to have to do with the organizational structure. You know, the 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 the, the, the diagram, as it were, of, of an organization of how things are connected, right? You know? Yeah. Well, you know, John Seeley Brown and John Hagel uh, wrote a, a really wonderful book a few years ago called Pull, and I, I got to to meet Brown and uh, talk to him about about this here. And and their premise again in I think uh, non jargony language there is that the way most corporations worked for a long time is you had a core, and it told people on the perimeter what to do. Yeah, and have Brown and Hagel's premise is. That's not going to work anymore because things move too fast and you you need instead to pull the core to the edge. You need to pull those people who are leaders out to the edge so they can get an experience like here's what's really going on in the market. Here's what's really going on in the technology. Here's what's really going on in the minds of your own people who are experiencing this, this stuff here. Right. And so organizational structure does matter because – the people in the core are like, why would I do that? I sure. took years to get to this uh, position within the hierarchy here. And now you're asking me to give away my decision-making authority. Yeah. And does that mean I'll also be giving away a few dollars? Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, it's insane for them. Yeah. Uh, so how, how does uh, semi-retirement feel? I, you know, I'm still working part-time there. It feels great. I love it. <laughs> uh, I... I would say this, that it's it's not easy to still be at the same organization because 
you know, someone else is in charge and you, you have to get very Zen on, you know, that yeah, yeah. it's not Letting me, go. you yeah. know, let yeah. go, let go of this here. And I think I've gotten better in that in the year just made and a, a terrible half. decision. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't say that necessarily, but I do say to myself that, what, what's going on? Yeah. What's that yeah. about? And then I, you know, I'm able to focus, like I, I'm really deeply into the, the research, you know, taking a look at uh, how is artificial intelligence going to change? The assessment game really more how machine learning is going to change the assessment game uh you know how how do we uh, uh bring uh, our products from capability to actually being in the marketplace yeah. it's not an innovation until somebody's using it things like that well and, and traditional testing stuff like sats and stuff there's a lot more schools who are weighting them lower or not even requiring yeah, them it's lately. interesting that gets a lot of, of play and you know the sat and advanced placement they belong to the college board and ETS yeah. does some, some work for them. So the college board, I, I think does a terrific job of, of understanding what they need to do in that regard. But, you know, as an outside observer, I would say, but the SAT and ACT's product are being used as end of high school exams sure. in a lot more places too. And every time a school says, well, they're optional, they're not going to do this here. I wonder what really goes on in the room in terms of admission and sure. you're down and you've got to choose these candidates here. Are, are they really throwing out those scores? I don't know, but yeah. I, I think that's overplayed in the media. Well, I, you know, I think, I think that as somebody who, you know, has, has a college degree, but is more of an autodidact than yeah. a, a heavy higher education person. And you have both higher education and you're an autodidact reading yep. many, many books. I mean, I think that there's a, a foundational shift that needs to happen in our educational system about who's ready for what, what they need to learn, how that's affecting yeah. society. Yeah. You know, I mean, all of these things, especially as automation, as you were saying, and AI and all this kind of stuff happens. Um, so it's going to be interesting to see over the next few years how that shifts. Well, my co my colleague at ETS, Randy Bennett, uh, and a whole team of other people who are still working out there – came up with this momentous shift of saying assessment needs to be looking at how you're going to use it in learning. So they call it cognitive-based assessment of, by, and for learning so that the assessment takes place within whatever tasks that you're doing. And another colleague who's, you know, one of the most brilliant educational measurement people in the world, Bob Miss Levy, he came up with a model for doing that calling evidence-centered design, which said like, what's the claim you want to make? What tasks would give you the performances that would allow you to make that claim there? And so if you implant that, if you weave that into the learning, then that makes so much more sense. Yeah. But you're going to have to change the culture to do that because people are used to other types of assessments or they're, they're even against assessment in Period. total. Sure. Yeah. 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 I've, I've uh, teachers in the family, right. Who have very mixed feelings oh, about yeah. the testing that goes on at least in, you know, K through 12 or whatever. It's always fun being at a cocktail party and someone finding out you're from ETS. Exactly. I would imagine. <laughs> how do you, how do you feel about the whole great books kind of thing? You know, the, the, the Western university of Chicago, let's everyone needs to read Plato way of thinking about education. I, I'm not sure about any statement that everyone needs to do anything there. I'm in favor of that for myself and I certainly would be, you know, would would recommend it for other people, but um I know he's he's somewhat fallen out of uh, favor for some other parts of his life, but I I, I was a big one on, you know, Joseph Campbell's Follow Your Bliss and I, sure. I know people have criticized this, but I'm interested in what the culture does for someone to allow them to get basic skills so they can then grapple with the issue of what do I really want yeah. to do and what am what am what am I good at there. In some cases, the cultural aspects that are available to us through things like the great books help us to do that. But in other cases, the person's not ready for that. So yeah. if you were to force Or wholly uninterested in it. Yeah. You know, if it's completely yeah. dry to them. I you know, I guess, you know, you should you should you should learn in the in the subjects that you're fascinated by, right? I mean, that's the that's the way you learn most quickly, right? Is it's, oh, it. this is interesting. I'm a sponge. Give it yep. to me. Yep. You know. Um, all right. Two last things. One, do you have any must read books in in your opinion? Uh, I really like. In, so, in my field, I'll give you a couple. There, uh, the deliberately developmental organization by Bob Keegan and Lisa Leahy, I think, is a brilliant book. And one of the things that's wonderful about it is their model of adult development which connects to that 
thing I talked about early on of being able to hold the situation outside of yourself instead of having the situation hold you is explained very well within uh, that that book. So I I, I like that uh, quite a bit. Um, you know, Danny Kahneman's stuff is good uh, to 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 read there. Nisbet's got this book about uh, changing there. N i s b e t t there. That's very good. But my go to people uh, were people like Roger Schwartz, uh, who's uh, written about teaming there. And that, Roger, I think, was almost unique in that two of the giants of OD were his his mentors and advisors. Uh, the late uh, J. Richard Hackman and the late Chris Ardris. And he's taken both of those streams and, and take, put them together there. So from that perspective, but you know, I, I think uh, people should read a lot of different things and learn things. I think they should read Ulysses and I, you know, I, sure. I think they should uh, read the Bible, uh, you know, and the Quran. I, I think there's a lot, a lot to be gained from reading. As you say, I am yeah. an autodidact and I believe in reading. Yeah. And lastly, if I wanted to book a flight from here to Portugal right now, could you get me a cheap flight using Sabre if I stuck you in front of a Sabre terminal? Uh, if you stuck me in front of a Sabre terminal right now, I'm not sure I would understand it since the last time I was on Sabre was 1988 there. And uh, so, uh, but I, I'm in favor of cheap flights to I think it works the Portugal. same. Oh, they haven't I changed. I mean, there's so. a front end to it. No, seriously. Uh, they, they still use it, I think, as the back end. They, and they, they've they created scraping stuff that basically- I mean, You have to understand, creates, WYSIWYG didn't exist. Oh, of course. No, I understand yeah, that. But I'm I, saying I, the WYSIWYG things that are in front of it now are really just scraping Sabre and putting it back. So? Yep. I at have not it, followed. You know, at least it was 10 years ago when I had Sabre and it's been sold several different times there. And I know it's still valuable. Look, I- Hey, if it's don't broke, it's I not created, broke, don't fix it. I created what- some people think is the first computerized supervisory training on Sabre. Uh, there were two courses that we created because you had lots of computerized supervisory training for other things, but the first stuff that dealt with HR and these employee assistance issues yeah. uh, there. So you could go in, I saw you could take training on how to load uh, a 747 or how to deal with uh, uh, transactions uh, in reservations and I thought, well, why not do this? And it was so text-based, so preliminary. So I hope they've gone past that. Yeah, I, th- I think that they've created they've created uh, uh, visual interfaces for it, but underneath it's still the same code. Look, it works. It's been working since 1950-whatever when IBM wrote it, right? <laughs> like, yeah, no. I mean, it, it was very powerful, and, and it was a tremendous asset. And I think that's one of the reasons when American was in tr- in trouble that it sold it there because it could get a lot of money. It sold that and it sold Sky Chefs. Yeah, uh, and and how many uh, how many plays do you want to write before you die? Uh, I I, I want to write the next one and the next one and the next one uh, there. Uh, I don't have a number like that, but I will say that uh, with my writing partner Joe Queenan, we have lined up. Uh, we've got one that's reading uh, on September the sixth. And we've we're working on the second one, uh, which is in uh, pretty good draft form. And we've got notes on the third one, and uh, a glimmer of an idea on the fourth one. And I've got a couple in the box that I want to bring out there. So I, I'd say I'm at, I'm at least up to uh, six or seven. Does it feel uh, um, I don't know freeing to 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 be writing fiction again? Yeah, it feels great. It just feels fun. It's fun to do. And uh, I credit Joe Queenan for uh, bringing me back into it, uh, uh, do it there. I'm very grateful to to him and to Marjorie for giving me the, the time, the time to, to stay up to two o'clock in the morning uh, uh, writing there. So I'm really enjoying it. I'm looking forward to uh, next week to go into the reading. So that'll be a lot no, of fun. Thank you. And this has been a great conversation. Yep. I really appreciate the opportunity. And I'm looking forward to uh, he, not only hearing this conversation, how it, it turns out there, but going back and listening to some of these other conversations. You're just thinking, man, if this is what this one was like, what must it be like with the chef? <laughs> I know. There's a, there's 11 other conversations that I got to go listen to. Exactly. Now. Yeah. Thank you so much, TJ. For Thank you, Bill. I appreciate it.